The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, auctioneers since 1793. With expertise in more than 60 categories of collecting, its specialists will connect you with your passion. Find what defines you at bonhams.com. Hello and welcome to the Art Newspaper Podcast. I'm Ben Luke. It's our last podcast of 2018 and as we did last year, we're going to look at the top art world stories of the last 12 months. Later in the podcast, I'll talk to Nancy Kenny and Margaret Carrigan from our New York team about the big issues in the US and the Americas. But first, I'm joined in our London studio by Martin Bailey and Melanie Gurlis. Martin's a long-term correspondent for the art newspaper based in London. He's also the author of a number of books, the most recent being Starry Night, Van Gogh at the Asylum. Martin also has a blog all about Van Gogh on the art newspaper website. Melanie's an art market columnist at the Financial Times and at the art newspaper, and she's the author of Art as an Investment, a Survey of Comparative Assets. We're going to begin by talking about the story of the year from last year as well, which is the Leonardo sale last year at uh, Christie's in New York for 450 million of Salvatore, the Salvatore Mundi. You might, one might have imagined that after the gavel went down and we learnt who had acquired the work, that, that, that the story would dim down and it would just be up to the public to look at it. But Martin, as you know from the story that you've written in the December issue of the art newspaper, there are still lots of questions abounding about this work. Yes, and particularly on the provenance. And obviously, we want to trace back as far as we can, um, ideally, to Leonardo's studio. And when Christie's sold the painting, uh, they produced a very large and substantial special catalogue with a chapter or a section on the provenance. And they argued that the picture had belonged to Charles I of England. Now, that gave it a wonderful British royal provenance, um, and it got back Uh, Not quite to Leonardo's time, but quite a long way. Uh, What we did in the art newspaper in the December issue uh, was to reveal that um, it may not have been in the British Royal Collection because there is another painting in Moscow in the Pushkin Museum of a similar subject, the Salvador Mundi, and it's no longer believed to be by Leonardo, but it was believed to be by Leonardo in the 19th century. And on the back of it, there is the, um, on the back it's a wooden panel, uh, there's the stamp or emblem of Charles I, and therefore the references in the royal inventories may refer to the Moscow picture and not to what we now call the Abu Dhabi picture. That's right, because there's this reference to a piece of Christ, isn't there, in the in the royal inventories, which were made when Charles I was executed and there was the Commonwealth sale. Exactly, and Christie's um, obviously seized upon that to, to say, that's our picture which we're selling. And obviously, uh, the cachet of it being in a royal collection, uh, you know, added to its value. <laughs> so what, what are the implications of this information? Well, um, I think the experts are fairly universally agreed it is indeed a Leonardo. I mean, there is some question about uh, the exact proportion of the work that's by the master's hand or the studio. So I don't think there's very much serious question about the attribution. But there is serious questions or there are serious questions about uh, the provenance and where it came from. And um, it it is interesting and important to establish that. And there are all sorts of theories flying around as to exactly um, how it ended up in the 19th century in a collection. And then, of course, um, we know a little bit more about it disappearing uh, to America and turning up in in an auction in New Orleans where it sold for a pittance. Now, there's this other question, which is that it is now in the collection of a museum – the Louvre Abu Dhabi. We assume so. Well, we assume so. <laughs> <laughs> and 
yet it has not gone on display. And there have been announcements uh, made, which uh, I think it was in September, which said it, um, it's it been delayed, its, its appearance. So there was speculation that it might uh, be put on view on the anniversary of the opening date of the Louvre Abu Dhabi, but that doesn't seem to have happened. What's going on? Well, I think this is one of the mysteries that's actually going to take over next year rather than the past year that we're reviewing. But it is most bizarre that the picture was, and we're virtually certain, acquired by Abu Dhabi and then not put on display. And they've made no announcement as to what is happening or, 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 or when it will go on show. I mean, we can speculate. Speculation isn't very useful, but there's obviously possibly a legal problem over ownership, possibly possibly some problem over payment, but there's no indication of either of those things. Um, some people have suggested that um, the painting might need further conservation work on it. But if so, you'd expect them to be quite open and to say, you know, we're doing conservation work and we're doing X and Y to it and it will go on display in the spring or whatever. Um, and the, the, the final question is, is, you know, are there questions of attribution about it? And they haven't really been seriously raised, but it is most mysterious. And um, I think we'll just have to wait and see what happens or else maybe the art newspaper will do some digging. <laughs> <laughs> Melanie, I mean, you're in touch with auction houses all the time. What, have Christie said anything about it? They're not saying anything official, um, but I, my understanding is the sale has gone through. Christie's has been paid, um, which, when it sold for $450.3 million, is quite an important thing to have happened, but I can't prove that. Um, other people in the market say it could you know, the the issue could simply be that these things take time. But I agree with Martin, if that is the case, then why not be open about it? We're not even sure where it is, are we? That's the big question. I mean, there have been rumours it might be in Switzerland, and we're hoping that it was being kept in the proper environmental conditions. Next year is going to be something of a Leonardo extravaganza because it's the 500th anniversary of his death. Martin, do you think that some occasion will be found in 2019 on which we will finally see the Salvatore Mundi in a public space? Well, there are a lot of exhibitions organised for the anniversary, but the most important will be that organised by the Louvre, which, of course, um, owns the Mona Lisa, among other pictures. And it's known that they want to borrow the Salvatore Mundi, and there's no reason why they shouldn't um, uh, have access to it as it's supposed to Um, at the Louvre Abu Dhabi. Um, So they're going to want the picture. And um, if they show the painting, it will actually give more um, status to it. It will show that it's been accepted by the French experts. If it doesn't show up in Paris, and I think the show is next autumn, there will be even more questions than we're asking now. Watch this space. Now, Melanie, obviously that was an extraordinary price. How has the market responded in 2018? Are we seeing similar extraordinary prices for other things? We haven't seen anything like that actually this year. Um, I think the market, there's been a little bit more enthusiasm for old masters works, which could have been prompted by the sale. But otherwise, in a way, it's been a bit of a long, it's cast a long shadow because nothing has quite hit the heights. Not, I I don't think I expected anything to hit $450 million um, uh, for a long, long time. But even putting something on the block that sells for much more than expected hasn't really happened this year. Um, it's been a marked difference. I think in 2017, you can put a work up valued at $100 million and sell it for $450 million. 
Um, this year we saw a Modigliani go on the market with the highest ever estimate at $150 million, and it didn't quite sell for $150 million. So it's almost been a, a disappointing year, simply because the stakes were so high. I mean, it was similar with the Picasso and Rockefeller collection, wasn't it? So you had this hundred million price. Was it was it an official estimate, or, or was that just a sort of the the sort of rumor? They're never well. A lot of these big lots are estimates on request, but then we all request. So yes, it is official. We can say a hundred million. But there's this sort of pattern, basically, of <clears throat> expensive works, but they sort of just do exactly what people what the estimate expects them to do. Exactly as we just saw with Hockney as well, um, and Rockefeller itself there was a lot of hyping beforehand that this is going to be the first one billion dollar sale uh and it wasn't and that's not to say it wasn't phenomenally successful and the biggest by far the biggest single owner collection auction back in in may um but it didn't exceed hyped expectations so is there some sort of correction across the market? Is there a sense in which there's there's a bit more sensible behaviour going on in terms of the where the smart money is and things? I think we're coming down from great heights, yes. Uh, I think that the year has had its ups and downs, but is going to look pretty flat by the end. I think I think sales will be up overall because volume has been so high, but I think it will look relatively flat and actually we're going into a quieter period. Um, can we talk about guarantors? This is a question which it's quite a complex one, so you might have to sort of do a sort of beginner's guide of it for the listeners. I, I'm not sure I completely understand <laughs> it, to be honest. Um, uh, guarantors is this growing, especially third-party guarantors, are increasingly prevalent in, on the market. Can you explain what that is and why it impacts uh, the market and what and does it impact prices? It definitely has been impacting prices. Um, the way it works, essentially, so I'm a seller um, and I'm a nervous seller. At the moment, people are a bit more nervous and this is partly why guarantees and third-party guarantees have become so popular. I'm not sure if I want to sell, but then an auction house says to me, I guarantee it will sell. I will pay you this amount of money for it to sell. And that's a, a pure guarantee. That's what it means that the work has essentially sold. Um, to do that, the auction house might say, but, you know, you'll have to pay me a little, you know, an arrangement fee. The problem with that is it puts the auction house's own money on the line. Um, and auction houses aren't banks, um, although this does mean they're acting a bit like them. Um, so what they have found is a way to protect themselves, which is to find a third party, which is normally somebody in the market, a dealer, another collector, um, to say, you know, we will then buy that work off you. So that becomes a third party guarantee. But that third person is then getting another cut of money. What that third person is saying is, I will buy that work unless someone bids higher than me, unless I'm outbid, in which case I will get a cut of anything over the consigner's reserve. The problem with that when it comes to valuation is that it's quite competitive, certainly between the big two or, or three even now. Phillips is also uh, part of the, the Sotheby's Christie's game uh, when it comes to guarantees. 
you are going to go with whoever offers you the highest amount. It's a natural, that is, an, of course. And what that does is it pushes values beyond, I think, what is reasonable. So then a work comes to auction, it has a very, very high guarantee. I mean, we saw it with a Picasso in London um, that was valued uh, at 33 million, I think was its estimate. And it sold for 24 million on one bid. Um, this It happened with the Modigliani that we talked about earlier, that actually no one wants to bid higher because the valuation has gone so high. They also don't particularly want to give an extra cut of money to their competitors. So they're problematic. They are problematic. I think Sotheby's has lost lost money, actually. On the Picasso I mentioned and the Modigliani, they've been quite open about the fact we can sell things for seven, eight-figure sums but still lose money. Not the best way to go. I think what we're going to see is that Guarantees are not going away, but they're going to be much more judiciously. But would you then say that the guarantees are part of this process of a kind of stagnating auction uh, process? That, 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 that perhaps we don't get the surprises in the auction houses as much as we might have used to because there is so much guaranteeing going on? Yes, absolutely. I think it takes the ex- definitely takes the excitement out. Um, if you go into an auction and there are 100 lots and half of them have already sold, that what will happen feeling uh, goes away. Um, but that is partly what sellers want. They're not feeling very risky. Uh, Melanie, I'd be curious to know what is the most expensive picture which did sell um, in 2018? It, this year, it must have been that Modigliani on the public markets. Uh, it, it sold for a hammer price of $139 million, um, which is about $157 million with fees. Um, and that, yes, I haven't heard, we haven't heard any buzzes about things selling on the private market for more because sometimes you hear a few rumours. I haven't heard anything else. We did also have this year the highest price for an African-American artist when Kerry James Marshall sold also at Sotheby's um, and the highest price for a female artist when Jenny Savile sold at, uh, at, uh, at Sotheby's as well. Um, so there have been other high points, but not as high as Nothing that. like the Leonardo. Nothing like the Leonardo. That's right, Martin, because... In the, and I'd urge people to, people to listen to the podcast from earlier in this year when which you had a discussion with Martin Kemp, the Leonardo scholar, who said that, in a way, Leonardo's in a, in a field of his own, isn't he, in this, in this regard? Now, the, the price wasn't uh, anywhere near the Leonardo, but the column inches were probably about the same. When Banksy's work, uh, Girl with a Balloon, uh, sold at Sotheby's in London in October and promptly began shredding itself. That was one of the art market stories of the year. Melanie, tell us more about the Banksy and what did you make of it all? Well, I think the Banksy definitely commanded more column inches than anything else I think I can remember ever looking at in the art market in my years of doing this. Um, You're right, it wasn't a, a, a nine figure sum um because it the hammer price was 860,000 pounds um which was already a lot for a banksy um but it was the most dramatic spectacular story uh, of the year in in my world um i i think it sums up a market 
and a, a world really that wants entertainment and spectacle. He might have been doing something incredibly clever. Um, he might have just been have engineered a, a stunt I would have thought was very difficult to have engineered. Um, either way, he has brought the most extraordinary attention uh, to our world. And and also prompted queues around the block to see the work when it was went it once it went back on display. I, I, indeed, and I did. I don't have uh, all the numbers, but I I would be interested to know how it compared, you know, per day, to when Chrissy's had the Leonardo here in London as well. I mean, I think one of the things I think about this is that I feel Banksy's got off a bit scot free here. I mean, in 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 a recent article in the Guardian, Jonathan Jones, the art critic, was comparing him to Duchamp, and he's been very critical of Banksy in the past, and and but saying he's a kind of Duchamp for our age, and. I, I'm I'm sort of much more sceptical about this. That lots of people are just sort of celebrating Banksy's prank and saying how um, sophisticated it was. But it seems to me that it wasn't a particularly rebellious act or an act which seems in any way to send up the art market. It seems to me that it was absolutely in cahoots with the art market. It played the art market a little bit, but look, it's it's sold. The painting sold. It didn't sh- didn't fully shred, and so mm. it was still a, still a commodity which sold for well over a million with fees. Yes, I mean, I, I agree that Duchamp is probably pushing it. Um, but I don't know how many auctions you've stood till the end of. Actually, shredding a work at the end of a very long week of auction is pretty exciting. <laughs> I thought it was brilliant. Yeah. And I, thought, I thought the act yeah. was uh, I was too. really a, a, an act of art. And you should have actually given the new title of the painting, because when you introduced us, you, you actually used the old title, and we should be using the new title now. So, yes, it is now called Love is in the Bin, and it consists of a half-shredded version of Girl with Balloon, with the sort of shredded bits hanging out of the bottom of the frame, and part of the work still intact, going up to about the middle of the frame. Yes, Love is in the Bin, and it was bought by a private collector, we believe. Yes, and, a uh, woman. I'm wondering if Melanie can tell us what it's worth now. It's definitely worth more than a million pounds uh, than its hammer. I mean, it is. I don't know for how long it will be, but I do think, I think there is an argument that you know maybe Banksy wasn't being massively revolutionary, but he has reflected our time so well that not only is a, a taste made in the auction room um, and all the events are happening on the market but now we can make a work on the market and I think it will go down in history. Do you think it will be worth double what it was sold I think for? it could be, yes. Well, I suppose one of the one of the interesting things is, I mean, the Banksy has been largely ignored by, for instance, the Tate. Um, the amount of times the public have nominated him for the Turner mm. Prize and the jury members of the Turner Prize have completely ignored him. Does this work in any way propel him into a different field, or are many museum curators going to take my view and see it as a see him above all as a prankster and not as a significant or serious artist? I don't know. We might be a generation away. I think taste changes. Uh, and anyone who is encouraging people who don't normally look at art to look and talk about art, I think, is a good thing. And I think it's unfortunate that the Tate has not acquired Banks's work. And uh, I think that will be re- re- regrettable in the years to come. And, of course, um, the prices will go up and up and they're missing an opportunity. Hmm. Uh, Martin, your timing is optimum. Uh, what a brilliant segue into talking about British museums. Um your story in, in the April 
issue of the art newspaper concerned a fall in visitor numbers to UK museums. Can you tell us more about that? Yes, I mean, the figures were going up and up uh, since free admission at national museums. Um, And then four years ago, they started going down and they've been going down every year since then. Uh, Not enormously every year, but it does add up. And uh, obviously, one's wondering what's gone wrong and why are people not coming to see our wonderful collections, which um, are free of charge. Um, Tourism has held up, partly because of uh, Brexit and the value of the pound. So foreign tourists are still going to national museums in London and the major centres outside. Um, And it seems to be a fall in terms of domestic visitors, um, partly possibly because of increasing transport costs. But I think the museums have got to look quite closely at this and um, possibly have got to put more resources into um, publicising their permanent collections and putting on um, good temporary exhibitions, where they do now, but to put on uh, temporary exhibitions which will really draw people um, in again. It's interesting, this, isn't it? I mean, I think it's this perennial question for... uh the free museums in the UK is how can we do more with our collections? Because they all do have extraordinary collections. And yet, clearly, if you look at the numbers, there's these big spikes when you have the big exhibitions. So they, the, again, we're, in, we're talking about an event culture. We're talking about spectacle. And museum visitors are attracted by the big shows. The fact is they can see as great art as that just every day on the walls of the museums. But how can museums do more about this? I mean, is, is, and do you know of any initiatives that the museums are taking on board? You know? Well, it is difficult publicising the permanent collection. It's very easy for uh, exhibitions um, to get publicity. Um, but uh, the museums do try. And um, an hour ago, I was actually at the National Gallery where they were unveiling the new acquisition, which was a portrait uh, by Artemisia Gentileschi, um, which has just gone on the walls. So um, it's a wonderful photo opportunity. We'll see the pictures in the newspaper soon. And that's the sort of thing they need to do um, to, to help publicise the collection. In fact, as you say, um, it's free of charge, the, ex- the permanent collections. And there aren't the crowds that you do in the big blockbuster exhibitions. So it's actually easier to see the pictures. Um, so I think they've got to put more effort into bringing in visitors to see their collections. I went to one museum overseas who part of its outreach program is saying to people, if you come to our museum, you can Instagram what you're doing. And I think making uh, something an event that maybe otherwise wouldn't be and using social media might be one way forward. Indeed. The the. One of the aspects of the of the lower numbers, as you say, is about the cost of getting to these museums for um, British visitors. Um, it's, a point, it's a point made by Sandy Nairn, the former director of the National Portrait Gallery, for instance. Um, but you also point out something which I think is which which I think is is slightly worrying, which is, of course, it's. When it's it's getting to the museum and then spending the money there, and the implications for the museums of people not spending money in the museums are very very important too. Because if if, if visitors fall, fewer people are spending more money in the cafes, etc., and museums are getting less money from government and rely on these other revenue streams. It really does get into a cycle, and they're increasingly reliant. Um, so they've got to the museum. So they've got to 
do all they can to maximise the revenue from the shops uh, and uh, the cafes. I mean, the problem is partly of people coming from outside London, because if you're bringing a family um, from the Midlands or something, two kids and two adults, and you pay for the train fares and uh, the pizzas when you're in London, it, you, it, it's actually very expensive. Uh, I should also mention, I mean, there the were concerns about the terrorist threat and every time there's a terrorist incident in London, it discourages people coming um, into particularly uh, the West End or Trafalgar Square. Um, obviously, the, the, the chance of being struck down by a terrorist is minute, and you're much more likely to uh, be killed crossing the road outside your own house. But psychologically, uh, it does discourage people coming to London. The there was one particular aspect of this story which was uh, particularly embarrassing this this year, which was this. Um, inaccurate counting of visitors at the National Portrait Gallery, which you exposed. So tell me about this extraordinary story. It, it, it is. I was absolutely astounded. I mean, the National Portrait Gallery's official figures showed very, very serious fall in visitor numbers, um, almost by half uh, over a couple of years. And this is, is obviously very bad news for the, uh, the Portrait Gallery. It makes it more difficult for them to attract sponsors, for example. Um, the government which funds them um, asks awkward questions. Um, Anyway, it emerged that the Portrait Gallery had counted the figures wrongly. It wasn't their fault directly. They were employing an outside company called Ipsos. And Ipsos had installed faulty equipment that counted the visitors at the front entrance. And this only emerged a a year or two, a year or so later. Uh, um, So if you have the wrong figures, it can look very bad. Exactly. We sort of don't know quite what the implications of 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 a year's worth of of, of poor counting of, of the numbers would have had. I mean, well, as you say, I, there's the effect on potential potential sponsors, yeah. etc. If I was the director of the National Portrait Gallery, I would be very annoyed because it's it damaged the reputation of my gallery, um, and um, I will be seeking some recompense from this company um, who'd um, installed the faulty equipment and had not been monitoring it properly. While we're on the subject of British museums, uh, you focus this year on a subject which we actually covered in depth in last week's podcast, which is this idea of the restitution of colonial uh, art gathered in the colonial era. Um, You focused on two different uh, aspects, the Magdala treasures from Ethiopia and then the bronzes from Benin. Can you tell us more about about what you discovered? And and, and I'm, I'm interested, because we didn't really cover it in last week's podcast, about to what extent there's an intent on the part of British museums to to put some legislation or to put some, to be active in in um, making steps in this direction? Well, I mean, in brief, it was during the colonial period there were various military operations uh, when artworks were seized. Um, in Nigeria, um, the Benin bronzes were taken, and they're probably the greatest artworks from sub-Saharan Africa. They're fantastic. We're talking about quite a significant number of works, aren't we? Yes, in, in, indeed, hundreds probably. And in addition to Benin, there were important works taken from Ghana, from the Ashanti Kingdom, and also from Ethiopia uh, during the Battle of Magdala, when uh, treasures from the emperor and a lot of religious objects were brought back to the UK, and many ended up at the British Museum and other museums. And obviously today, this would be considered quite wrong that one should seize um, artworks during a war, and indeed it would be against international law. But at the time, it was unfortunately regarded as quite acceptable. So the question is, what now? 
And the British Museum say quite rightly that they are legally not able to deaccession works to put them out of their collection. Um, but there has been a shift really in the last year or two, I would say, um, to the idea that possibly we should be lending these objects back to the countries where they were shown. And that seems um, an eminently uh, suitable way um, of dealing with the situation um, because one's not losing the objects permanently and you avoid the legal problems of deaccessioning. Now, on the African side, um, the feelings are ambivalent because the Nigerians think that they have a right to these objects, rather like the Greeks and the Parthenon marbles. So they're reluctant, uh, or there is a certain reluctance to accept them back um, on loan. And the same is true uh, with Ethiopia. I mean, we covered Ethiopia quite a bit in the art newspaper uh, during this past year. And uh, the uh, director of the V&A told us that he was very happy to lend the objects. The ambassador was uh, concerned that this would create problems and uh, not very much has happened so far. But it does seem to me that there's a way forward that one will gradually lend objects back and that will enable Ethiopians and Nigerians to see part of their culture, an important part of their material culture, which was effectively expropriated or looted during the colonial period. And it's an issue which is not going to go away um, on the continent. A lot is happening. Um, the French government has taken... Uh, this commissioned this report which is calling for the return, the permanent return of objects and there's been a lot of discussion in Germany and my hunch is it's going to be a very major issue in the art and museum world in the year to come. Now the word blockchain is a word which is beginning to infect the art world in all sorts of corners. Uh, obviously it's a uh, cryptocurrency and therefore the market would seem to be the most obvious place where blockchain might affect the art world. Melanie, any sense in which it's having a significant impact? Yeah, I mean, uh, first to say actually blockchain isn't a cryptocurrency. So Bitcoin is a cryptocurrency that is backed and a lot of all these cryptocurrencies are backed by blockchain processes and technology. Um, but the definitely I, I've slightly... I slightly start glazing every time an email comes in my inbox with the word blockchain. It's been unrelenting this year. Um partly because cryptocurrencies had such a strong year in 2017 and the art market, you know, people are always looking for ways to make a quick buck. Um, the, the currencies have done appallingly this year. Um, that's sort of by the by at the moment. People are trying to harness it in essentially two different ways. One is we accept payment in crypto where we will tokenize works and sell them for cryptocurrencies, which um, are essentially the same thing, are pretty unproven and let's see. The other thing that market players are getting excited about is that blockchain could potentially address issues of privacy, security, authenticity and somehow be amazingly private and amazingly public at the same time. Um, it, again, it's early days. It is what we're talking about is a very, very sophisticated database. Um, and we saw Christie's had an auction of works, very high profile works from the Ebsworth collection that were all put on the blockchain through a company called Artori um, and that gives them an you know, indelible record of provenance and that's the sort of thing people want at the moment. It's very, very, very early days. 
should we not be making some positive noises about anything that improves transparency in the art world? Oh, 100%. And I am positive. If, if, if blockchain is the answer, then fantastic. Um, nothing has been the answer so far. And I also think there's a difference. You know, we've talked today about provenance issues with the Leonardo um, and so on and so forth. I think there's only so much you can do for older work. What you need to do is start tracking work today. And at least in 200 years, there's going to be a record of, of the, the bears relation to the truth. 200 years. I wonder what the art market, <laughs> what, what the art newspaper podcast year in review will sound like then. Um, uh, I'm going to ask you about stories which perhaps weren't as weighty uh, uh, and were more engaging and entertaining. Martin, let's talk about this wonderful Gainsborough story. We covered it in, an, in a podcast earlier this year. It's one of my favourite stories of the year. It is about murders, so I'm not sure we should, I'm not sure we should use the word entertaining. Um, anyway, it was a story that we ran earlier this year about two of Gainsborough's relatives. And I was working uh, with Mark, Mark Bills, um, the curator or director of the Gainsborough House, on the story for an exhibition that he was doing. And Mark had discovered that uh, two of Gainsborough's relatives had been involved um, in uh, a bankruptcy case and there was a row with someone over the return of the money and they had threats against their life. And I was able to find newspapers from 1738, which gave the details, and they were pretty horrific. There were threats against the uncle and cousin of, of Thomas Gainsborough, the, who was the young artist at the time. And uh, the, the cousin was threatened with either being shot or hung. And the newspaper report said that he was being accused of of being the rogue's arse. Now, this was an expression we don't normally use in the art newspaper, so <laughs> I had to ask my editor whether he could exceptionally use it uh, because it was a, from a historic document from 1738. So we did. Um, and I also discovered that the two men had indeed been murdered and one of them was murdered in a London pub. So we have the details of what happened, astonishingly, after all those many years. I mean, the interesting question to me is uh, what the implications were for the, uh, the the artist. He was uh, he was only, I think, twelve at the time. And it must have been traumatic to have two of his of his close relatives murdered. And his namesakes, both his names. They were all called Thomas Gainsborough. Yes, and um, one wonders, you know, what the impact. You know, did it make him more determined to succeed in his profession? It certainly didn't put him off. So I think it throws a new light on, you know, one of the really great British artists. Melanie, any stories which caught your eye this year? I did think I can match 18th century <laughs> murders, I'm afraid. Um, but I, well, I, the, my highlight of the year is that Victoria Beckham got behind old master portraits, which has got to be one of the most unexpected and bizarre, I mean, a form of Spice Girl getting into, you know, 15th and 16th, 17th century paintings. But she didn't only get behind them. She is really waving their flag. And it works. that They look good in her store. It's not a one-night wonder. She's done it again this year. She, there, there were four uh, still lives in her 
showroom in London. Um, she has plans in New York as well. And I just think, you know what, it's collaborative. It's unexpected. It's an area of the market. You know, Victoria Beckham, a fashion icon, she could so easily have picked a contemporary artist and splashed her name over it. I think it's really exciting. So there is hope for old masters Exactly. Then. Well, one wonders, did Victoria Beckham conceive of... Uh, entering into this um, infatuation with the old masters before or after the Leonardo sold for $450 million in the It was New York after. Auction. It was after. I mean, she says it was a visit to the Frick that had inspired her. I think, you know, portraiture and selfies, you know, I think there are links because uh, portraiture was where she started. Um, but no, it was definitely after. Okay, and lastly, I'm going to ask you both for your exhibition of the year. Martin, let's start with you. Well, Ben, you won't be surprised uh, that I'm going to choose Van Gogh. Um, (laughs) And the exhibition I would spotlight was an exhibition on Van Gogh in Japan, which was in Amsterdam at the Van Gogh Museum last spring. And it was uh, meticulously researched and very beautifully presented. And it told the story about how Japanese art and Japanese prints in particular, had influenced Van Gogh uh, in his artistic development and his paintings. And seeing the exhibition once again made me feel how uh, exotic Japanese prints would have appeared in the, ni- in the late 19th century. We're so used now uh, with computer screens and, and, and everything to see bright, colourful images. But in, in those times, it wasn't. And it it must have been mind-blowing to the artists, uh, the Impressionists, who were influenced by the Japanese prints to see these vivid colours and these strong outlines and very strong images. So that's my choice of the exhibition of the year. And that reminds me, Martin is co-curating a show at Tate Britain next year, which is all about Van Gogh and Britain, which we must get you back onto the podcast to talk about. Fine. Um, Melanie, uh, your show of the year. Well, I'm sorry to say it's also a, a modern modern art show, um, which is the Picasso 1932 show at Tate Modern, which I really, really didn't want to like as much as I did um, because I thought a modern, you know, Tate Modern should be showing contemporary art, really. Um, but it just, it was amazing about his art. It was amazing about how the year affected him personally and professionally and also, you know, brought in things like the rise of fascism. It really was. I thought it was spectacular. But can I ask you, Ben, in the hope that you're going to give us something contemporary? Uh, <laughs> at my show, your I, show of the year. I was, I was going to say Picasso 1932 uh, <laughs> and Tate Modern. Um, <laughs> but actually, I'm going to, uh, probably now you said that, I, I completely agree with you. It was, it was one of the great yeah. exhibitions I've ever seen, I think. Um, there was one room where, where, where you, we saw the works that Picasso had done over the course of I think six weeks and, and, then, and then there's even a section which was done over about ten days and it was masterpiece after masterpiece and, it, and, and the level the, this sort of prodigious level of greatness um, yeah it was, it was spellbinding I thought um, but I, no I'm probably going to go even further back <laughs> Um, uh, there were many great contemporary shows, but um, I don't think any show affected me as much as the Charles I show mm. at the Royal Academy. It's a collection which, uh, if you ask anybody what was the greatest collection of all time, then Charles I collection is right up there. Um, 
And while it wasn't able to piece together all the masterpieces, there are so many masterpieces that were in, that were in that collection that can't be lent. But still, it was just astonishing. It was room after room of extraordinary paintings. There was one room in the middle of it with all those amazing Van Dyke portraits of Charles I. And it was, you know, it was the sort of room where you almost sink to your knees with the sort of gravity of the great works around you. So, yes, Charles I at the Royal Academy for me. But I wanted to ask why they didn't have the Leonardo painting, because at that time it was thought to belong to Charles I. And I think the Royal Collection, for a moment, thought about trying to ask to borrow it. But in the end, I think they thought it was rather sensitive and probably rather wisely uh, declined to put in a loan application. That's a great way to come full circle in the conversation. Martin, thank you. Melanie, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Ben. We'll be back talking to two of our New York reporters after this. This Christmas, those in the art world and beyond will be reflecting on the year that's drawing to a close. At Bonhams, it's been a remarkable 2018. The number of lots that Bonhams sold for more than a million is up 70%. Among these astonishing results was a world record for a work by Fujita, La Fête d'Anniversaire, that sold for £7 million in October, contributing to the Impressionist and Modern Art Department's most successful year ever. Other departments, such as African art, also had its best year since Bonham started sales in this category in 2009, helped by a world record for Ben and Wombo's Tutu. Meanwhile, modern British and Irish art equaled its best ever year thanks to the sale in November of Henry Moore's Mask for more than £3 million, another world auction record. Bonham's hopes that wherever you are around the globe, you've had an excellent 2018 and that 2019 will be equally magnificent. Welcome back. Now, I'm joined by Nancy Kenny, our senior editor in New York, and Margaret, or Maggie Carrigan, our deputy art market editor there, to talk about the big stories in the Americas in 2018. Nancy, I wanted to begin by talking about the turmoil at the Museum of Contemporary Art in Los Angeles, because that seemed to be quite a big story this year. It happened last spring, yes, in March. Um, The museum's chief curator, Helen Molesworth, was ousted amid apparent disagreement with the museum's director, Philippe Verne, about the museum's direction. There were reports that Verne thought that her commitment to diversity in programming, you know, her desire to feature more women, more people of color, was too inflexible, and that he wanted her to devote exhibitions to more mainstream artists. Meanwhile, there was a wide impression among Molesworth's supporters that Verne tended to support the favorite artists of the trustees. So she was out in March, and then two months later, Philippe Verne himself steps down after four months, four years in the job, and two months, of course, of intense speculation about whether he'd last. And so there was a there was rudderless. So then in July, Klaus Biesenbach, the director of MoMA PS1 here in New York, was named the new director. It was said to be a unanimous vote by the trustees. And some feel that he has the experience, you know, managing the staff and board at PS1 that will make him an effective leader. So we'll see. I mean, the, with, with L.A. Mocha, I mean, it, do you, what sort of, um, how central is it to that scene? Is it, if, it's, if, it, if there is a bit of turmoil, uh, does it affect the wider scene? Is, uh, do, uh, you know, were there a lot of artists involved? Was there, was there a turmoil amongst trust, wide, the wider trustees of the museum, etc.? Yes, the trustees are, many of them are artists, and they tend to be heavily involved with the museum for, for better or for worse. There's a lot of diversity of viewpoint on that. Um, but it's it's baked into the Los Angeles art scene. And and do you think um, 
now that Beesenbach's involved, that will calm the waters somewhat? Because, I mean, already there's sort of consternation about that appointment, right? Well, there was some. Some in Los Angeles criticized the appointment, you know, characterizing him as yet another middle-aged white man from New York after all the directors they'd had who had been the same. And so there's a sort of a wait-and-see attitude. A lot of people are very positive. Um, there was also some criticism that he compared L.A. and its, you know, creative ferment to Berlin. And some thought that was kind of a silly frame of reference for someone who should be, you know, widely acquainted with the L.A. art scene. Okay. I mean, the the subject of diversity in museums and diversity amongst the leaders of museums is another is another important topic this year, isn't it? I mean, uh, it's significant that we should say that the National Gallery of Art in Washington has just appointed a woman as director there. But there is uh, uh, there there's been a lot of focus on who is leading the museums and what future there is for a more diverse leadership. Well, in the United States, you know, museums have for decades excluded people of color, not intentionally, I suppose, but from their top leadership to the curators to the artists they display on their walls. Um, In January, the Mellon Foundation and the Association of Art Museum Directors um, published case studies sort of highlighting museums that are more diverse than usual. And I think this year you started seeing more signs of change. You see museums like the Museum of Contemporary Art in Chicago, for example, the Whitney in New York, and the Los Angeles County Museum of Art hiring more minority staff members you know, offering paid internships and teaming with foundations and universities to ensure that, say, the next generation of leaders will include more people of color. At the same time, there's sort of an insularity in the art world. Um, for example, at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, there was a bit of cogitation over whether um, the museum, you know, rudderless since Tom Campbell stepped down under pressure last year, would aim for diversity in choosing a new director. Um, the museum ended up hiring Max Holine from the Fine Arts Museums of San Francisco, um, another white male, of course. Um, many applauded the choice. He's run five museums. He's curated shows that range from old masters to modern and contemporary art. And he's boosted attendance at the previous museums he's led. He definitely has the financial acumen to lead. Um, meanwhile, the museum seems to be getting its house back in order after um, posting deficits and some cost overruns for a couple of years. Um, then in the oddest game of musical chairs, um, the Met director who was ousted the previous year, Tom Campbell, was hired to take over the Fine Arts Museums of San Francisco, as if they simply swapped places. And that choice seemed to suggest a very short list of candidates in the museum world. On the other hand, as you say, you know, the National Gallery of Art just hired its first female director, Kaywin Feldman, and she's made strides into boosting attendance as director of the Minneapolis Institute of Art. So there's some high hope there. And what about the Mets uh, building project? Because there were concerns about that and how the turmoil there would be affected by it. Is that back on track? Well, it was a $600 million wing, and now they think it is back on track, but they think it might cost a bit less, maybe around $500 million. And there seems to be you know, a growing confidence that the museum is getting its house back in order after those deficits that they posted. The Met has long been you know, sort of a laggard in terms of modern and contemporary art, and that's changing. They tend to showcase modern art at the museum now, and they want to set up a dialogue between art historical works and art in the public spaces of the museum and contemporary artists. I mean, one of the things that's actually in the pages of the art newspaper in in recent years, there's been there's been some concern expressed about that, and 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 uh, a concern that obviously with the Met Breuer and other things that that the 
Met is disproportionately focusing on contemporary art when actually its strengths are in more historical and and this uh, you know an encyclopedic museum field. Uh, are those still extant? Do you think do you think those will rumble on for some time, or is there just a, more of an acceptance now that that's what? That's that the the Met will have a strong focus on contemporary as well as other things. Well, as I said, Max Holine has taken over, and he has a commitment to modern and contemporary art. So I think you're going to see the museum doing more rather than less. It's just that they won't be doing it in the Met Breuer after 2020. They're pulling out of that sort of satellite they had down the street, and deciding to focus more on the Fifth Avenue flagship. Is the sort of pulling out of the Met Brewer project, was that sort of planned or is, is that um, aborting that project a little earlier than people might have expected? Well, it was a couple of years earlier than anticipated, yes. And some people wonder if that commitment to, you know, truly challenging art will continue in the main flagship because the Met Brewer is known for staging, you know, edgy shows and very provocative ones. The, the, the Whitney... Meanwhile, there's been uh, a recent storm about in relation to trustees and uh, the staff. Can you explain what's going on there? Well, staff members at the Whitney, they've rebelled a couple of weeks ago when it came to light that the vice chairman of the museum's board of trustees, Warren Canders, was the chairman and chief executive of a company that manufactures tear gas. Now, this was the tear gas that was used to, by U.S. border agents, you know, fired at asylum seekers who made a dash toward the border uh, toward the end of November. So around 100 staff members uh, signed a letter calling on the museum's leadership to convey their concerns to the board and to consider calling for Candace's uh, resignation. And all this sort of underlines the idea that cultural institutions in the United States are very dependent on wealthy donors whose values or connections may not seem entirely aligned with the staff's. That is an interesting issue, isn't it? Because obviously at the moment in the States, it's uh, just as it, as it is in many places in Europe, of course, it, the, the atmosphere is somewhat febrile. The political situation is so polarised. We do find uh, a greater focus on people's political ethics, etc., etc. And it's inevitable that that will come into the, the, to the cultural field, isn't it? Yes, it does. And of course, the concern about ethics dovetails with greater scrutiny of the ethics of museum sponsors, too. Uh, for example, this year you, you, you saw the photographer Nan Golden leading protests at a number of museums in which she called on them to boycott donations from the Sacklers. Now, the Sacklers are the family whose firm, um, Purdue Pharmaceuticals, ma- manufactures OxyContin, which is a highly addictive prescription drug, which has caused a lot of um, heartbreak across the United States. We've... Um... We've been asked to make clear because we we keep reporting on the Sackler issue that the the Sackler family are obviously concerned about this, and there's one part of the Sackler family which relates to uh, Arthur M. Sackler and his heirs, and they are keen to point out that that they are not connected to the drug. It actually relates to his brothers and this company Purdue Pharma, who produced OxyContin actually ten years after Arthur M. Sackler died, and so they've asked us to point that out whenever we reference this the Sackler funding. But but nonetheless, there are very many cultural institutions who've received philanthropic funding from the part of the Sackler family that is connected to Purdue Pharma. Yes, you here and in London as well. Yes, exactly. I mean, in London, very many institutions, for instance, the Victoria and Albert Museum and Tate Modern are among them. And I, and I think this is it speaks to this wider issue of uh, museums and ethics. And one of the things that uh, one of the uh, contributors to the art newspaper, Adrian Ellis, has pointed out is that sometimes museums 
can appear quite slow to take a moral position on these things. I mean, as far as I know, no museums have made a, a, a progressive statement which is to decline funding from that particular part of the Sackler family, uh, certainly in, in, in Europe. Is there any, anything like that in the States? Um, they've totally sidestepped the issue, I would say. Indeed. I think it's definitely a question of watch this space, but at the moment, no, no real action in that regard. Other music, I mean, the, the biggest catastrophe in terms of museums in, in 2018 was clearly what happened in Rio de Janeiro. Oh, you mean the fire? Yes. Yeah, there was a lot of mourning and there were deep recriminations after this fire, you know, devastated the museum in early September. Um, it was the repository of more than 20 million objects, you know, spanning maybe 11,000 years of history. And the fire destroyed everything. Well, I'd say 90% of what was there from what they've been able to estimate. And that's, you know, twice as many objects as you'd find in the British Museum are gone. Um, People attributed the fire to government negligence, like state cut packs, for example, had deprived the museum of, of the upgrades it needed for its own safety. There was no sprinkler system. And um, meanwhile, the staff holds out the hope of rebuilding, but the election of a far-right president throws the future into question, really, because he's talked about dissolving the culture ministry and cutting funding for the arts. That's right. The museum doesn't, doesn't appear to have a friend in jail, Bolsonaro, does it? No, it doesn't. Uh, Bolsonaro is is known as tr- as the Trump of the tropics. Um, so let's talk about Donald Trump and uh, the cultural scene. Uh, he is not a friend of the arts by any stretch of the imagination, but what has his impact been on the arts? Has he been able to uh, affect funding, for instance? Um, he's had very little impact, actually. Um, his new budget proposal this year uh, was rather aggressive. It called for actually shutting down the National Endowment for the Arts and the National Endowment for the Humanities and also the Institute of Museum and Library Services. Uh, luckily for you know, its proponents, um, Congress rebuffed his request and actually gave all three of them a slight increase of funding in March. And funding's held steady for the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. But, you know, he's just not perceived as a friend to the arts, as you said. Um, last month, for the second year in a row, um, President Trump and the First Lady skipped the Kennedy Center Gala, which, you know, the President and First Lady usually attend. And that's where Lifetime Achievement Honors are presented to performing artists. Um, nor did the, the Trumps invite visual or performing artists to the White House, unlike past presidents. I suppose they've they've probably quite rightly spotted that they don't really have much support amongst the artistic community. I suppose not. (laughs) Um, One of the intriguing projects of the year which related to Trump was Christopher Buchel's Border Wall project. Can you explain more about that? Oh, okay. It's it's a little bit ironic, his whole project. Just take it with a grain of salt. Um, An online petition was hosted by a non-profit facetiously named MAGA for Make America Great Again, except this time it stands for Make Art Great Again. And it's thought to have the eight prototypes for Donald Trump's um, proposed border wall designated a national monument. The prototypes are in San Diego near the Mexican border. And the person behind all this, you know, supported by his gallery, is the Swiss artist Christophe Buschel. Um, The petition invoked the Antiquities Act of 1906 and characterized the structures as a major land art exhibition of, quote, significant cultural value as if the prototypes were conceptual art. And um, the nonprofit even offered tours of the prototypes. 
So this was offensive to a lot of people. Um, artists and curators, you know, joined in signing an open letter criticizing Bushel's proposal as being tone deaf. They thought he was concerned more with, like, spectacle and irony than with the suffering of Latino people at the border of these families who have come to the United States, you know, desperate for their futures. I have to say I agree with that that viewpoint. I was I very much supported those artists in that view. And it's a sort of common trait in Buchel's work. He's he's uh, he's an ironist, but he takes no clear moral position. And I think on this subject, it felt just complete. It, it, on the one hand, it felt like a very feeble satire of Landau on the one hand, but also a rather misdirected form of irony when it's such an emotive issue and there were actual people's lives being very badly affected by what was going on on the border. Well, the artist who signed the open letter said it was obscene for an artist in a gallery to profit from something that was so painful and unjust too. Yeah, I think that's absolutely spot on. Uh, let's turn to the market. Maggie, yes. um, we've I've discussed with Melanie already about blockchain, but but Artificial intelligence was also a, a big story this year. Um, tell, tell, tell me about what happened at, at Christie's and, and, and what the reaction has been to it. So I think with, with Christie's, there's a lot of speculation when they announced um, in, in the early fall that they were going to sell the first AI-generated portrait by a collective known as Obvious. And those the guys that made up the collective, they were the like three Paris businessmen, young guys, they just, they didn't have a, a background in the arts. And so there was a, a fair amount of um, of skepticism going into the sale of what exactly this would mean for AI art in general. And of course, uh, what, what happened was that despite it being relatively... Um, low price at $10,000. This 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 uh painting went for sorry, it's not a painting. It is a generated work of art that was uh, in its prints and multiple sale. Um it ended up going for $432,000. So that's 40 times its estimate, which is really unheard of. Um a lot of people think that this was some kind of watershed moment, but I think most people still think that this is a very um these are untested waters when it comes to AI generated art. It's also worth noting that generative art, like um, anything, computer-generated art, has has been around for a really long time, since the 1970s, really. And those those artists that have been working in the field have really struggled to receive any kind of market recognition. So the fact that this collective kind of bypassed all of that and, and the struggles that these artists have had even making a market for themselves, I think, is a really interesting point. And it kind of... Uh, underscores that this may have been more of a marketing ploy for the auction house than it was any kind of real benchmark of support for computer-generated art. Um, but that being said, there there has been a, a resurgence in interest, of course, um, as we you know, really get up to speed in our, our digital era. There have been a lot of works over the past couple of years that have sold for increasingly higher prices that are computer-generated or software-based, such as uh, Raphael Lozano Hemmer's software-based sculpture that sold for 118,000 at Phillips in 2015, and there was a um, Team Lab work that sold again at Phillips in 2017 for 240,000. And Philip Philippe Pereno has been priced around 6,600,000 dollars by his uh, London dealer recently. So while obvious is kind of sh- sticker shock price at Christie's. Um, 
does seem a bit maybe outsized for what the work was in many ways, it is also in line with some other works on the market. Indeed. I mean, one of the one of the interesting things is that the obvious, the, the reason that the obvious work sold for as much as it did was because there was this idea that it was completely generated by, by AI. But actually, as uh, the journalist Jason Bailey has, has noted on his blog at artgnome.com, actually, he's, he's uncovered and spoken to people from obvious. And, they, and it's all a bit of a ruse, really. I mean, if you look at the, this sort of uh, conversation that he has with them, it's clear that they sort of thought it was a funny, funny idea to say it was completely generated by AI. But there's actually gone, there's been a hell of a lot of human uh, involvement in the creation of that work. So in a way, I feel, and as I say this actually in, in my column in the in the December issue of the art newspaper that I feel like to a certain degree, we've been a bit hoodwinked into this being a genuine work of AI. And actually, as you say, works in which humans have worked with computers have been going on for decades. So uh, yes, I mean, it's a sort of, you know, of course there will be more work with made with AI, but I think actually there's actually many more interesting things going on than what obvious are doing. Absolutely. And I think that that's really underscored in the fact that this work was offered in the print and multiple sale at Christie's, which is, a very traditional type of sale and this is a very traditional type of work in a lot of ways indeed now um uh, another sort of big story uh in terms of in terms of auctions was of course the david hockney that sold in new york in november and made the the record price for a living artist there's there's been all sorts of interesting ideas around this in terms of there was no reserve for instance tell us about the sort of intrigue around the painting i think what's interesting what what the thing about no reserve is that w- there's been a lot of attention paid to guarantees and how they're kind of floating the uh, auction secondary market right now and how those are driving prices up, maybe unnecessarily so. So when Christie's made the announcement that they were going to offer this work without a guarantee and they had they had such a high uh, estimate for it at $80, $80 million that a lot of people – we're curious whether that would affect what it actually ended up going for if it wasn't if it wasn't being backed by a third party, um, because it, of course the the work was priced well beyond what any David Hockney work had ever gone for at auction before. So um, without that kind of safety net of a guarantee, there there are some that kind of speculated that there, it could offer real transparency into the art market, right? So without without third-party backers making people feel more secure about fronting this money, that somehow we would see some a sort of um, true market demand. And that was originally put forward by Josh Bayer in his newsletter who broke the news of this. And a lot of people took issue with that, and rightfully so, because I think what what the no reserve sale actually really, really points to is is how – it's successful marketing, really, um, <laughs> on Christie's part, and and the kind of speculation that is driving the market right now, for better or for worse. And when the work ended up hammering pretty much right on the nose at eighty million, it raised a lot of eyebrows in the sale room because it just seemed far too tidy to be real, right? There was a lot of anticipation of the sale based on the fact, like, what if it falls short? What does that mean for the Hockney's market? And then also if it far surpassed that because people were just so jazzed up for this this high-profile sale, what could the, how could that provide, like, a unsustainable bubble for the market as well? And when it ended up just kind of, you know, anticlimatically hammering right at $80 million, which is 
you know, to, to say that something is anticlimactic is 80, 80 million is probably um, not, not entirely justified on my part, but there was a sense that there was some kind of backroom dealings, that there was some um, unofficial guarantee, a first party guarantee, if you will, that this would sell no matter what. Fascinating. Um, uh, let's talk about fares. Um, the, the, there's There's been quite a lot of focus on um, all sorts of different aspects of the, for instance, the people that own the Art Basel fairs have reduced their regional fairs, haven't they? Um, yes, the MCH group, which owns Art, the Art Basel fairs, they've had kind of a really trying year this year. Um, and it's largely spurred by the fact that their, their big moneymaker is their, um, Basel World Fair, and that is a big luxury watch fair. And Swatch, the watchmaker, actually pulled out of that in the summer and very vitriolically. Like they, they had no love lost for, for Basel World, and they were very open about saying it. And it really put a dent in the MCH group's expansion that they've been doing over the past year and a half or so. And that was seen in, um, in their investment in the Art Dusseldorf and India Art Fairs recently, where Art Dusseldorf, they had recently purchased a 25% stake, and then they had a majority stake in the India Art Fair that was a little over 60%. They kind of snuck this one in on us a, a, a couple of months ago, where they just, they quietly pulled out of those, both of those fairs, leaving them a little bit in the lurch. And it had a lot of people speculating what was going to happen with the Art Basel fairs in general, whether those would see any kind of a hit. And, and what do you think, and, and you know, from, from your perspective, do you think that the, the Art Basel fairs will be hit? Do you think they're, do you, or do you think they're just so established that they're, they're, they're kind of almost impermeable? Ultimately, I think that they will be hit. Um, I, I don't think, I think it will take a lot longer than, uh, a couple of months to see any residual side effects. But ultimately, I think what we're seeing is the, um, in general, just a lot of these these larger fair groups really having to think harder about their expenditures. And because uh, the, the fair scene is so oversaturated at the moment anyway, that they're, they're going to have to proceed cautiously no matter what. And I suppose in that in that environment, when a fair like the Freeze New York fair happens and it's swelteringly hot and air conditioning doesn't work and uh, that sort of thing, then then that's quite disastrous to a certain degree. I mean, they've got Freeze Los Angeles coming up. Do you think has has Freeze's reputation in the US been affected by what happened in New York back in May? A hundred percent. I think there's a lot of dissatisfaction with the Freeze New York Fair and dealers are really disinclined to do it again after the excessively hot temperatures last year. And, or, and it's, it's, I think in general, there's been a lot of speculation over whether a, a LA art fair can survive at all. There's been several that, that haven't, and it's, it's, it's just tough not to crack market wise. And so Coming on the heels of such a disappointment of a New York edition, a lot of people are are concerned and, and watching with breath that is baited what happens next with Freeze. I'd like to move on to something that, well, on the surface, I think we should regard as, as good news, which is that African-American artists and women artists have had good years on the market. Yeah, I think there's a, a lot of reasons for optimism. When it comes to 
African American artists especially, they've they've had a big boom in the market over the last year or two. And that was really reflected in a lot of the big auctions this year, uh, especially when we go back to the spring in May at Sotheby's in New York. Carrie James Marshall's pastimes sold for $21 million, which was an, an astronomical price, um, especially for a contemporary artist and especially for an African-American artist. And um, going into the fall sales, a lot of 20th century African-American artists also really uh, had their had their day, and there was a lot of uh, there was a lot of collector interest uh, again at Sotheby's during their postwar and contemporary sale. Jacob Lawrence's The Businessman went for six million, and that tripled its high estimate. Um, there are a lot of works by Basquiat that went for a very healthy forty million, all taken all together. Um, and then uh, Jack Whitten, who just died last year. He, uh, his work, Ancient Mentor, went for $2 million, around $2 million, and that doubled his previous auction record. Henry Taylor also did really well, uh, set a world record when his I Put a Spell on You. Uh, it quadrupled its high estimate and ended up going for nearly a million. So I think that there's a lot of demand for these artists, um, and it's really good to see, it, to see their contributions to the American art canon being monetarily supported on the, on the secondary market. And um, again, we're seeing uh, the same kind of trend for women artists as well. I think the, the UBS Investor Watch Pulse report that just came out in December, it showed that three in five collectors said that gender is a determining factor in choosing what to buy. And 70% of these collectors said that they would would want to purchase a work by a woman artist in the next year. So that all speaks to, uh, I think, what we're hoping is a, a watershed moment for a lot of artists that have been undervalued and overlooked over the over the you know course of the last century, if not centuries. Indeed, I mean the reason I said it on the surface it was good news is, and you have to tell me about American collections, but certainly in terms of European collections, you know we just had Soul of a Nation the show which is currently at the Brooklyn Museum, which is touring to the Broad in Los Angeles later in the uh, later in twenty nineteen. Which began at Tate Modern and, and was a, a, a landmark show, but work by African American artists is incredibly scarce in in, in European collections. Uh, Tate Modern has a few long loans; it has a few few works in its permanent collection, but it is very very light on work by African American artists. It occurs to me that now that there's a surging market, it will be it it will potentially be it will be potentially more difficult for museums in Europe to be able to buy their work. What about American museums? Um, Had American museums been consistently collecting these artists over the years, or are they too in in a process when they're having to catch up, when the market's already caught up? I can't speak authoritatively to the collections of a lot of the museums here. I would say that they've definitely collected more than the European contingent, of course. But I think in general, what is what is a little more problematic about this this market boom is that because there is this demand, and I think I think I do think a lot of the buyers at these at these sales have been institutional in a lot of ways too. Um, this isn't all uh, per, like private collectors that are that are interested in picking up these works. But but you're right, there there. They've been overlooked for so long. There's really not 
one authoritative repository for a lot of these artists. Um, there are a lot of galleries that have been dealing in this artwork for a, this kind of artwork for a really long time, and those galleries have actually been reporting that they've seen kind of a, a surge in forgeries attributed to 20th century African-American artists especially, and I think it's because of this market demand. I think anytime you see a big surge in the market for artists that were overlooked in their own lifetimes, and it creates, it creates a bit of a bubble since the supply of their work is obviously not going to be able to meet the demand for it, and it can introduce some really problematic behavior by you know, bad actors who are looking to capitalize on that and maybe take advantage of what's happening on the market for their own personal gain. And I think we're seeing that, uh, as reported by these dealers, and kind of an uptick in uh, forgeries attributed to major African-American artists lately, including like Jacob Lawrence and Romari Bearden and, and Charles White. And so many, of those, um, so many of those artists have been seen recently, not only on the market, but in uh, major institutional shows as well. Uh, so I've asked Melanie and Martin what their exhibitions of the year were. What about yours? Well, I'd say, you know, the Warhol retrospective at the Whitney, that generated a lot of buzz. Um, the museum really pulled out all the stops. There was there were more than 350 works, you know, probably spanning four decades. And the exhibition went against conventional wisdom, and it made the argument that Warhol's creativity remained undiminished after an assassination attempt the one in which he was badly wounded in 1968. The show celebrates, you know, late innovations of Warhol's, like his ghostly still lifes and his art historical appropriations and abstract camouflage paintings of the 80s. And at the time they came out, they did not draw an enthusiastic reception. So this exhibition was a little bit revisionist. It even delved into Warhol's beginnings as a commercial illustrator in the 1950s, you know, arguing that the aura of desire in his drawings of products like high heels paved the way for his later work, you know, the very popular pop artwork, and his own mystique. And, and you had, I mean, you did a, a fantastic interview with Donna DeSalvo for the podcast, Nancy. Did the show live up to what you hoped for once you'd done that interview? I think it did. I think it was a real crowd pleaser, and it also was very provocative in telling a new story of Warhol. Is it? Is it? Is it? When you say it's a crowd pleaser, I'm sort of imagining it's it's utterly packed. But it, but is is that the case? Is it? Is it? Is it sort of? Is all of New York descending on the Whitney? Yes, there are time tickets, and people are waiting in line for it. Great, Maggie. What about your show of the year? The Hilma F. Clint show at the Guggenheim is absolutely spectacular. And talk about you know overlooked artists finally finally getting their due. It's an amazing show and really timely in a lot of ways too. Of course, the you know the big story about that is is that she wanted to wait until you know there's a designated time in which she wanted her her works presented to the public and and here they are and and it's definitely worth seeing it because they are phenomenal. That's quite neat, isn't it? We've got Warhol on the one hand, he's an established figure and we're re-looking at him and, and rediscovering him. And then Hilary F. Klimt, who over the last sort of, I guess, the last five years has really become quite a prominent figure and, and getting getting the Guggenheim, no less. And, and, and it does seem a genuinely revelatory show. It absolutely is. I mean, I think it's it's so, it seems, her work seems so incredibly contemporary, which is, you know, I think a lot of people's big surprise over it once they go to it. But then also just to see such a strong woman artist take over such a architecturally male space, you know, just what what the Guggenheim represents in that way. Uh, it, it's 
it's really a great juxtaposition and it's a really fun show. Okay, well, Nancy and Maggie, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks. And that's all for this week. Of course, you can read more about everything we've discussed today at theartnewspaper.com. And many of the subjects have been dealt with in depth in podcasts throughout the year. Do take time to listen to our archive over the holidays. And if you fancy really treating a loved one, why not buy them a subscription to the print edition of The Art Newspaper? You can find all the details at subscribe.theartnewspaper.com. We hope you've enjoyed the podcast in 2018 and we'll be back in January. Thanks to Bonhams for their continued support. Thanks also to all our contributors today, Martin and Melanie, Nancy and Maggie, and to you for listening. Happy holidays. We'll see you in the new year. The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams. Find what defines you at bonhams.com.